Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. It's Valentine's week. Make money, money, make, make money. Money can't buy you love, yet it sure makes it a lot easier to get. But what about money problems? People spend so much time planning the wedding and no time planning the actual marriage. The money pit in relationships. It might look like I make a lot of money, but my actual account and lifestyle might not. There's a lot of secret stuff going on. Why people lie about their finances and how you can get to the truth. Their love is unconditional. If I start talking about HIV, what are they going to say about you? Because you're with me. A Philadelphia couple's journey to finding God and family. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome back to the Flashpoint Podcast. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus for this week, money. Make money, money, make, make money, money, make money, money. Ah, yes, money. It's the root of all evil, and for many, it's also the seed for love. Financial stability is a major factor in attraction. It's also used to express love, but money problems weigh down relationships. Money is the number two reason for divorce, and secrets start early. According to a recent Fidelity study, nearly half of all couples have no idea how much money their partner makes, and financial infidelity is on the rise. CreditCards.com reports that millions of Americans have either a bank account or credit card that they keep secret from their partner. But what does this do to a relationship? And can money buy love? With me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is Dr. George James. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist. We also have Linda Kearns, a family law attorney who blogs about the issues of love and divorce. And finally, we have Robert and Tunisia Bettis, a husband and wife team that teaches financial literacy, including a couple's and cash boot camp. Everybody, welcome to Flashpoint and to our love show. Thank you. Thank you. George, I want to start with you. Besides love, what are the main factors used to choose a mate? Chemistry or compatibility. Sometimes it's uh, safety and convenience, meaning like someone that you feel like you can be yourself around and that you've known them long enough. So people say, what's the next level? Let's get married. They definitely include financial. Definitely financial in, in terms of how much they can connect money-wise. It's also the second leading cause for divorce. So what what about money breaks people up, Linda? Unfortunately, a lot of people go into marriage without having those important conversations about finances that are necessary for a lifelong partnership. And then when money troubles come up, it, they just spiral out of control. People can become financially devastated by a divorce. Their lives can be completely ruined. Robert and Tunisia, you help couples have the conversations that Linda talks about. How do you make the space for that? Well, the first thing that we ask these couples to do is to be transparent. And that's something that... That's tough. That is tough. <laughs> <laughs> these are conversations that should have happened prior to jumping into a relationship. But what we find a lot of times is that that isn't happening and there's a lot of secret stuff going on. So getting people to open up about that is work. George, why is it hard for people to open up about money? Their shame, uh, the way that my family did it is the same way that your family did it and that usually it's not. And so there could be shame within the couple. There could be shame, especially when you now go to an outside source of like, are you going to judge me? Are you going to look down on me? 
at do I have enough money or like my degrees or my work might look like I make a lot of money, but my actual account and lifestyle might not or choices we make. So there's all these things that people are weighing that could make them feel uh, shame or embarrassment or fear of judgment. But then you're trying to be in this relationship and 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 if you're not open and you don't because people <laughs> disclose, they disclose mm-hmm. a lot of stuff about themselves or you feel like you're close to them. But not the but credit score. <laughs> <laughs> they're not I mean you would think that you would have lot you ask lots of things on you know the first early dates you even you might even ask like about sexual history but people are not asking about financial stuff which they don't find out sometimes until after they get married and that's that's way too late when the IRS start knocking on the door mm-hmm. and Linda I mean a lot of uh people talk about money because you can also use it to hurt people. Absolutely. There's two ways you can use it to hurt hurt your spouse. If you're the earner, you can control the money so that the spouse has to come to you all the time for every little penny. But I also see, and, and I've seen this recently in the past few years, uh, a lot of spouses, for whatever reason, decide that they don't want to work and they refuse to work. And not because there's young children at home or, or, or other issues like that, just that they refuse to work. And that damages the the marital relationship. They're not only not bringing money into the partnership, they're also draining it. And that can cause a lot of stress. So I look at that as another form of financial abuse, not pulling your weight, not contributing. Wait, so you mean this back there, we got to pause on this. So you mean to tell me you get married, this person works, and then one day they just say, you know what, I ain't going to work no more. I have more cases than I can count with that with that fact pattern. But when you delve deep into it, what seems to have really been happening is when the when they got married, they told their spouse that they were a consultant or they had just lost a position and they were looking for it. So if you really delve down, I think the clues are, are there. But if you're married to someone who is refusing to, to work and contribute, it, it can just just destroy you. Yeah, male or it doesn't matter which partner it is, uh, whatever, I've, whatever I've, kind of couple it I've, is. I've yeah. absolutely, I, I've had both. And then when when uh, it, when the marriage breaks down and you go to uh, get a divorce, uh, a lot of times that spouse who stays home, uh, you know, pictures themselves or, or or portrays themselves as, well, I was the housekeeper, I was the homemaker. When in reality, they really weren't. They were sitting home doing. Absolutely nothing. Is this part of what you teach people to have these types of conversations? (laughs) Yes. And we actually walk them through that process, which we find a lot of times is um, is very entertaining from our end because there's a lot of conversations that haven't been had. Give me some examples of the conversations that's supposed to happen that are not happening. Um, You know, well, how well do you balance your checking account? Oh, basics. Like, yeah, you know, are, are you, anybody that. Are you yeah. saving for retirement? So, you know, not being, um, what do I want to say, conscious and, and just being clueless about money is, is expensive. And it winds up costing a lot in terms of strain on relationships and just financially as well. It costs couples a lot of money to not have these conversations and to not be open and honest. So give me an example of the devastation it could cause by you not asking your partner, your boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, about their money habits. Well, they'll be walking to Linda's office, most likely. I mean, we've sat down with a lot of couples, (laughs) and it's a laughing matter here, but it's a serious matter. Um, You know, taking out loans without discussing something with a spouse having a secret account, you know, that might be considered financial infidelity to some Mm -hmm. people. And there's a lot of strain on us in our society as far as 
what the expectations are for individuals in a relationship and not talking about that in the beginning causes problems. And so let's talk about this issue because there was a big study that just came out recently about the secret accounts, Mm. the secret credit cards, the secret debt. Dr. James. So a lot of this. They got to come to you. I know. From my perspective is that we learn a lot of things from our family and from previous relationships. There's messages like, oh, you know, so I'll give one. A woman should always have side money. Right. So there's a way that that message has been passed down. I was told that. And then on the mm-hmm. other side, guys were like, you know, make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Like, you know, like there are ways that people pass down messages and now it plays out in the relationship. And now there are these secret accounts or things that people are not owning up to. But now they're both responsible and it causes tension and fights and they don't communicate about it the right way. And now that's where they end up getting to the place of maybe thinking about ending the relationship. Is a secret account, is that cheating? And why is it cheating? Or why do people view it that way? So it goes back to what is your philosophy about relationship and marriage? If you say marriage is about being fully honest with your partner, then everything should be on the table. If you say marriage is that we get to hold certain things secretive, which that's not necessarily the full belief that most people have, then yes, that wouldn't be infidelity. But if you say it's all access, then and you're keeping it secret, then you are cheating. You're holding something behind. That's betrayal. That's taken away from the trust. Linda, when does that betrayal become abuse? When we find out about these types of secret accounts at at the divorce stage, either a debt, a secret debt or a a secret asset, um, it can cause a huge problem because generally speaking, I practice in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and generally speaking, everything that happens during the marriage is basically up for grabs when you go to get a divorce. So you don't look at what he has and what she has. You look at the entire marital estate. So if, say, wife has has scrimped and saved and managed to save $50,000 and husband has managed to run up $75,000 in debt, then you have a marital estate worth negative $25,000. And people get really shocked because they say, well, wait, this was in my name. But in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, we're not a title state. We just look at what was accrued from the date of marriage until the date of separation. So you own your husband's or wife's debt. Absolutely. When you get married, you say, I do. But it also means I will support you. It means we are one financial unit. So how do you try to get the smoke out of here, you know, and not walk in blind and get shocked and then be running over to Linda, giving her all your cash? When we sit down with couples, um, we're asking them to bring everything to the table. And what happens a lot of times is um, a husband will get up from the table and a wife will say, let me uh, tell you about this other credit card that I had. Um, so we're honest with them. I can't help you fix this. If you're not bringing everything to the table and everyone has to be aware of what's going on. So let's start from putting everything out there and working through it because it can be fixed. So that's the end of the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is that it took you time to get to this point where wherever you are financially, but it can be fixed. But that's going to take work as well. And so should it be like a team mentality? You know, if you're married and and you find out, you know, you're... You get married. I've been married five years. You found out your husband has a hundred K in debt. Is it his debt or is it your debt? Like, how does this work? Uh, unfortunately, I've we've run into cases where it's either or. So you could have a wife or a husband that's like, well, that's her stuff. And she's just going to have to work on that and vice versa. So you'll have some couples who will say, well, we'll work on this together. But you have a lot that are like, no, that's your issue. You got to fix that. So what does that do to a relationship? It puts stress or it puts tension. If you say that, right, if you say that that's your debt, you need to fix that. 
So then what do I need to do to get there? But now I feel like as my partner, you're not being supportive. So that's I where, didn't know this is what I was signing up for. And that's where they have to figure it yeah. out. Because there's always negotiation within a relationship. Yeah. What are the terms of our relationship? And when that comes up, now we got to renegotiate. And you might be feel the betrayal. You might say, look, I don't want to do that. But then there's something else that you might need. How do you raise the children if you have children? How do you navigate time together or or intimate time? Like all those things are all negotiations, including money. And it gets all put into the same pot. Because if you're not supporting me with finances, I might not feel like I want to support you on your business idea. It starts getting real cold-blooded. It does. And that's where people end up separating because they feel like they're not supporting each other. They're on an island. And then they sometimes think about other people or other or not being connected. Yeah. And so then you have people going to to Linda over here to say, how do I get out of this mess? And then there's more mess. Divorce can take a a long time and it can cost a a lot of money. And, you know, you're you're taking a a household that and, and a pot of income that was supporting one household. And then all of a sudden you have to divide it into two. And basically that same income usually has to support, you know, two, two houses, two, two rent payments, two uh, utility bills. And there's just usually not enough to go around. And we end up with very different lifestyles post-divorce. The thing that I notice is when people are get engaged, it's obviously a very exciting time, very romantic. Mm-hmm. People spend so much time planning the wedding the flowers, the photographer, the the parties ahead of time, the bachelor party, and no time planning the actual marriage. And I think if people spent maybe 2% of the time, you know, that they spend on the wedding actually thinking about the marriage and this lifelong partnership, a lot of these marriages would be way better off. Yes. So how do we set this up? So I think that conversation starts prior to getting married. That oftentimes does not happen. Yeah. Most times it takes for an abrupt situation to occur for a couple to come in and say, we need help. So that's where most people are. They've already messed up. They've already gotten into debt. There's already some secret stuff going on. And then they're seeking the help. because. But that is a good thing as well because at least they are trying to get the help and get the instruction. So starting from that standpoint of admitting that, okay, this is not working. What we're doing isn't working. And so we need to try other methods to get this together so that we can stay together. Now, what I've seen is you have one person that wants to deal with the debt and you have another person that puts their head in the sand and pretends like it doesn't exist. You have savers and you have spenders. You have cheapskates and people are like, look, man, can I get my shoes have holes in them? Can I get another pair? (laughs) How do you bring people together who have different philosophies on so you can even sit down and have a plan? The biggest part that I try to encourage folks to think about is communication, right? You're going to have those differences. And some of those differences is actually what attracted you to that person. Maybe they were the big spender and you liked that and that you didn't grow up with that. But how do you communicate about that? How do you say who is better to make those decisions? Maybe the person who is the cheapskate is the one that's going to help us get out of it. And then once we get out of it, we renegotiate and now we spend a little bit. So it, it's to communicate and it's to really see what are the strengths that people can can have and and to work together to move forward on whatever plan. Yeah, because you have to, I guess, kind of figure this out because there's a lot of tension. And should you do something to protect yourself? There's always a a prenuptial agreement. They're not necessarily right for every couple. Mm -hmm. Um, There are certain categories of couples that I think that people should very seriously consider prenuptial agreements. Like if it's a second marriage, if you have children, 
Uh, if you have family money, if you are the much higher wage earner, that you know, those are cases where you should really consider a prenuptial agreement. And the process, the prenuptial agreement process itself, promotes transparency because in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey, uh, it, you require full and fair disclosure. So you have to sit down and say, okay, this is what we have. This is what I make. Here's my tax returns. Here's all my assets and debts. So that exercise, even if it doesn't result in a written prenuptial agreement, can be extremely valuable uh, for a, a couple entering a marriage. Now, should you be asking for people's credit scores and stuff like that? I think it's how it's done, right? Like if you're like on the second date, let me see your numbers, right? <laughs> That's not really the way to go about it. Right. I think like if you're building a connection yeah. and you realize this is going somewhere, then it's like, look, these things are important to me. Have you been tested? What is your credit score? So you're communicating about it as you're building the connection and the relationship. Are there red flags? I mean, you can watch people's spending habits. A red flag is, well, let me let me hold $20, <laughs> you know, until yeah, I get yeah, paid next week, you know. <laughs> let me hold something real quick. Uh, and that happens too frequent and we both work and we're both adults and you're always coming and asking me for money. That's definitely a red flag having those conversations. But I feel like what we're saying, you know, you're attracted to opposites. So opposites are going to attract. So you might be interested in that person who is the spender and they're flashy and you like that. Maybe you grew up and you were just very modest. So having that conversation is difficult. Because you're like, oh, well, yeah, you can get $20. But then now five children later and $100,000 plus debt later, now you're like, you always asking me for $20. So, it's you know, when you do see those red flags, pay attention to them. and But have the courage to actually say something. And what about second marriages? They spend all their money on child support or alimony. and this And you would be the second wife coming in. Right. So if you if you choose to marry someone who who is coming into the relationship with all of those responsibilities, you have to realize that even if you're marrying someone who might be a high earner, there might not be that those earnings available for for your relationship. And it's something that you have to discuss. It's something that you have to plan for. And can we talk about the D word and the D word I'm referring to is debt. Some people view debt as a non-starter. How do you tell somebody uh, that you owe money? And how do you get that information about how much they owe without blowing up this chemistry? And the- As you're dating, as you're with someone, you start to hear some of the signs, right? You start to see some of the signs. Their spending habits, how much they might use a credit card, you know, even just thinking about, like, you know, the school, right? Like, so certain things you might know ahead of time and you might be able to ask. There's certain things that we know, right? Like if you've been in school for a while, there might be a large pro- probability that you have student loan debt. Yeah. But how much student loan debt, right? And so being able to ask those questions, once again, once the relationship gets to a serious place where you are really starting to think about the future, where you're really – or even knowing that your emotions are at a very committed place, that's when you should have those conversations. You don't want to have it too early because you're going to scare the person off. But you don't want to wait too late where you're already so emotionally involved that you can't pull out. Is there a legal way to deal with joint debt? You mentioned that once you get married, their debt is your debt. Once you get married, debt that's accumulated during the relationship, that that becomes uh, shared debt. If you come into a marriage with with debt, um, if you start the marriage and you have a debtor and assets, most cases we can exclude that and that doesn't become part of the marital estate. A, a prenuptial agreement is definitely a way to protect yourself. Filing separate tax returns, even though you might uh, have to pay higher tax rate, um, you're not buying into their potential tax debts. Not having a joint credit card, 
because, you know, if you have a joint credit card and the other person runs it up, Visa or MasterCard's not going to care when they come running after you. They're, you can't say, oh, well, the other person ran it up. Well, then you shouldn't have had a joint credit card to begin with. So, you know, in those cases, the, the relationship can still survive. I mean, opposites do attract, but you might have to have much more careful planning and, and lead somewhat uh, separate financial lives. How, do you, how should you approach debt in a healthy relationship? And so people should say, okay, we're going to tackle this as a team. It yes. seems like the team debt tackle is the, the, is the best way it versus is. you handle yours and I'm going to handle mine. Well, right. isn't, isn't a relationship a team? You know, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I mean, when we're thinking about yeah. things, like so if two people are going to get something accomplished much quicker than one person doing it alone. So if we plan to make this relationship work, if we're planning to be together, if we're saying we're going to work this relationship out, then we need to work together on common goals. And I don't know anyone that doesn't have debt. Do y'all? Let's do this together. Let's do it together. Buckle down and get it done. Buckle down and get it done. Because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Give me your best advice for all when it comes to love and money for Valentine's Day. Have the conversations. Start it early, but continue it. And if you can be open and transparent, you can work through anything as a couple. And then when you do that, then you can set your goals and have a wonderful marriage, but also feel secure with your partner that they're not hiding something, uh, especially around money. Linda? These are difficult conversations, but I think you have to be smart about when you bring these conversations up. And I probably wouldn't do it on Valentine's Day. Use Valentine's Day to celebrate romance and love in the relationship and then save this conversation for another day. Wonderful. Last word. Uh, Be creative and money conscious for Valentine's Day. We're not here to impress. If you're already in a relationship, you can do some great things with some small coins. You don't have to spend a whole lot, you know, to say I love you for Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Thank you to Dr. George James, to Linda Kearns, and to Robert and Tunisia Bettis for appearing on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, they say their marriage is their ministry. I love her because she is her. That's it. A unique story of unconditional love. We'll be right back. It's the smart look at the issues catching fire in Philadelphia. Flashpoint. What we have is a crisis. This goes way beyond just the perpetrator. You know how many times I had stopped people in front of my house from shooting up? It was a moment where black and brown people on the margins got to say, no, we've been hurting. I think we forget that you came from somewhere else, too. Host Cherry Gregg walks you through the flames. On air Saturday evenings at 9.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30. Or search the Flashpoint podcast on the Radio.com app. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. And every year, we take Valentine's Week and we talk about love. I wanted to bring in a couple that has made headlines for their unique love story. Lynette Trawick is a Christian mother of 11 children. She's an entrepreneur and runs her own nonprofit. And she's married to Daniel, also an entrepreneur. They're here in the KYW studio to talk about their big old love. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to, I heard your story at a, at a Valentine's Day event about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And so I want you to explain what makes your love so unique. The thing that makes our love so unique, first of all, the 11 children part is yeah. very attention That's a lot getting. of kids. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot yes. of kids. Yes. So I, I think that is one of the main factors in our love story. The fact that we're entrepreneurs, the fact that we work, you know, it's so much, so many mm-hmm. different components in the mm-hmm. love story and that our marriage is so 
public and we're so open with a lot of things. And the fact that we always keep God first and are unafraid to talk about that. And I have to mention this because this week was um, National Black HIV Awareness Day, yes. February 7th. Yes. yes. HIV is also a part of your life. Yes. 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 But y'all fell in love post and got married post HIV status. Yes, we yes. fell in love post HIV status. Wow. And so talk about that a little bit because y'all y'all knew each other for years. Mm-hmm. How did you meet? We actually met through a mutual friend on Facebook, but also through the spoken word scene as well. So our friend was a host at a spoken word spot. Yes, yes, yes. sniff it yes. up, sniff it up. <laughs> and, you know, we pretty much met on one of her posts. And from that, it was a friend request, friend request and just natural dialogue on Facebook, nothing major. And then one day I had an infamous Facebook rant. That turned into her becoming my daughter's hairdresser. And every two weeks, my daughter got her hair done. And over those years, we began to grow a really, really good and strong friendship. Completely. And then things shifted. It was my 30th birthday. And so me and my boys, we had this big plan. I wanted to go to Vegas. I've never been. But I wanted to go to Vegas and act a fool. She was my best friend, so I invited her to come out. My niece, who was just turning 21 not too long prior, I invited her to come out. And so last minute, my boys backed out. And so the dynamic completely changed. And to make a long story short, what happened in Vegas did not <laughs> stay in Vegas. Yeah, that <laughs> one didn't stay in Vegas. didn't stay in Vegas. No. So, yeah, stuff happened. We came back and we were uh, kind of together. And, and then y'all all y'all both got kids mm-hmm. separately mm-hmm. that y'all brought together in a blended family and now have a child together. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's how we know it, this is... It was God sent because of all the craziness that surrounds the relationship. We still managed to smile through it all. Part of what uh, I, that drew me to this story is the unconditionality of your relationship. One of the words that Daniel just said that is very important is our foundation. Right before our relationship began, I started a new relationship with God. And I said that the next guy that I'm with, I want him to go to church with me. Here comes Daniel. He actually joined the church that I was in without me talking about it. And then our relationship with God individually started becoming stronger. And then we started having that that yearning to have that relationship with God together. You know, so we started doing Bible study together. And so I think that that makes a huge difference in our relationship because we grew in our relationship with God as we were growing in our relationship. And y'all got married pretty quickly once Mm -hmm. the relationship started. We went to Vegas, I think it was June 16th to 19th or something like that. Then a few months later, Lynette was like, you know what, we're going to get married. You're going to marry me. I was like, okay. And so we started planning a wedding for April of the next year. But then... um, being in church together and we were living together, it was a lot of conviction. And so it was like, you know, we got to get married sooner. And so instead of April, we ended up just getting married the 1st of January, right after church service. Wow. And how many years have you been married now? Five years. Five years. Wow. Five and years, New Year's Day. Congratulations. Thank you. Y'all just had y'all uh, another anniversary. So yep. Yes. What has been the biggest challenge? Blending the children, but not in a sense where, you know, it's a lot of kids. That that wasn't the challenge. I think blending the children as in personalities of, like, the children's other parent, you know, uh, the fathers or the mothers, just dealing with the, the frustration of trying to figure out, okay, who's with who and when and when are they coming here and that kind of thing. That was a battle for me. And then just so you know, the 11 kids that I mentioned mm-hmm. are the blended family. His, mine, ours, theirs, and who that. And why are you public and why have you been so transparent with regard to your relationship, your status and all of that? Our, our marriage is a ministry. I feel like our story needs to be told mm-hmm. because it's very unique, you know, because we 
have so many different components to our marriage because HIV plays a huge factor in our marriage. Um, especially, so my ministry, I have a nonprofit called I Am You Incorporated, mm-hmm. which is centered around HIV, around my HIV status. And Daniel being HIV negative, that's a huge story because there's so much stigma out there um, surrounding people who are living with HIV. It's this big thing like, okay, people who are living with HIV have to be alone forever, you know, or if they are with somebody, they should be with somebody who's living with HIV too. And that's that's a huge misconception, you know, thinking that people who are living with HIV are just going to, quote unquote, infect the world, you know, if they sleep with other people. That's not the case. So we choose to be public with our status and public with our relationship to show the world that God can overcome all of that stuff. So Daniel has, has been HIV negative all five years, you know, the entire five years that we've been together. Um, as long as I stay on my medication and go to the doctor and our shirts today say make them famous. That plays a huge role in it because we always talk about God. You know, we always have God in the center of everything. So God plays a huge role in our family. It plays a huge role in our children. It plays a huge role in our lives with HIV and everything. And I have to ask you, Daniel, I mean, you found out y'all have been friends for years. So you, it's not like you met uh, Lynette off the and, and, and found this out. Mm-hmm. You knew her and then you found out. Did it not even cross your mind at all? Talk about how you overcame that status because a lot of people don't know if, if they could do that. My father, I found out he was positive and this was the beginning of uh, 2012. Because of that, I was educated. So we met in 2008. It was October 2008. She was diagnosed with HIV November 2008. So I actually met her a month prior to her diagnosis. But she did not disclose to me until... Because I was just friends. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, yep. Mm-hmm. So until 2012, which was after the AIDS walk in 2012. That's when she actually disclosed to me but because I was already educated to a certain extent because of my father's status, then now I, I knew more about how to be there and support her. And at this time, we were still just friends. I was with my ex-wife at the time. Don't make faces. She always <laughs> makes faces. It was a transition of learning about my father and being there for him to learning about her and being there for her and just being a, a support system. Y'all know this timing was freaky right here. Yeah, very. When you mm-hmm. found out yeah, yeah. and after you, and then that made you more, because you understood it, it made you more accepting to somebody you already knew. Was it even a, a blip? Was it even a speed bump for you, Daniel? No, not at all. Not at all. So even prior to my education on HIV and AIDS, I always lived a little rebellious in the sense I really didn't care what anybody had to say about me or what I did. If I made a choice to do something, I was going to do it. I don't care what nobody said. And so once I learned what I learned and then once Vegas happened, it was just, well, we're together now. I I mean, I I know as long as you take your medication and the doctor says you're undetectable, then I know I'm good. And that was before all the new campaigns came out recently. But I I just have such a strong faith in God that I'm good. And y'all have a baby together, mm-hmm. a child. Mm-hmm. How old yep. is your son? He's three. Three, three years old. Yeah. HIV negative. Yes, See, ma'am. And I like to educate people because mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. still people still have no HIV AIDS is one of my 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 causes. Mm-hmm. And uh, people do not know that, you know, yeah. people have a lot of kids are being mm-hmm. born, y'all. That's yes, right? yes, indeed. And they are 100 percent fine and yep. healthy. Yep. OK, yes. I think I think in the beginning with our relationship, it was more of a struggle for me to understand that Daniel was in it for the long run and that he accepted me 
with my status. It was more of a struggle for me because in my prior relationships, they didn't accept my status. So you would tell or, people or you just... Yeah, I would tell the person that I was in a relationship with and a number of things would happen. Either they would say, okay, well, I'm not going to deal with this. I got to go. I'm not, I'm not ready for this. Or, okay, sure, we can be together, but just don't tell anyone that we're together. Or, sure, we can be together. You can tell people that we're together, but don't talk about HIV. So it was usually one of those three things. So by the time I got into a relationship with Daniel... I was so damaged from all of these memories that I had from these previous what I call situationships. You weren't relationships. <laughs> these previous situationships, you know, that I was in that I didn't really know what I was supposed to do in regards to HIV in this relationship. You know, so I was so used to being quiet about my status and not really telling anyone. Daniel was the, the one who kind of pushed me into doing a lot. Go out there, speak, start your organization, write a book. He was the one who pushed me to do a lot of the things. And I'm like, but... If I start talking about HIV, what are they going to say about you? People are going to talk about, I was so concerned about Other what they people. were going to say about him. Not even about me. What are they going to say about you because you're with me? And he had to keep reassure, like keep reassuring me for years. I'm okay. Go do what you're supposed to do. Go out there. This is your call and go do it. You know, so it took a lot of getting used to, to actually go out there and like really be public with my diagnosis. Have you ever met anybody like that? I mean, like this man here. <laughs> I'm asking. I'm like, yo, because, no. you know, like a lot of people don't put that kind of support in you. Yeah, yeah never. And, and I was skeptical because of it. It's yeah. like, okay, well, what else? <laughs> you know, something, something got to go wrong in here. You know, so it was it was such a mental thing in the beginning to yeah. just to accept that, to yeah. accept that he really loved me with HIV. Oh, she just said something. I got to I gotta Please speak. Please speak on that. I didn't. Not, nor do I want anyone to think that I loved her with HIV. I'm putting the air quotation marks up. She's an amazing woman, period. I love her because she is her. That's it. HIV is a part of our lives because we talk about it. But if we weren't open and talking about it, it would not be a part of our lives at all, honestly. Yeah. At this point with the medications, I know there's still some complications affiliated with them. But people live in long, healthy lives as long yes, as they indeed. take care of themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. and even with the medications, there's very minimal complications with medication now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very minimal. Still have to get tested and all that stuff and know your status because mm-hmm. it's like you were, you fully disclosed. So, mm-hmm. you know, you made your decision and now y'all together, y'all married, got the kids, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. But your advice for couples out there get tested. That's one of the biggest things that I can say. Daniel still gets tested every three months and every relationship. Know your status. You know, it's not about feeling like I got to get tested because he might be doing something. That's not what it's about. My thing is, you never know what a person's past was, you know, and they may think, okay, I got my life together now. But if you've never been tested, you still don't know because HIV can lie dormant in your body. Number two, I, I would say to build your confidence with HIV through education. So make sure you're educated enough, especially if you're living with HIV. Make sure you're educated enough to go out and educate other people. Yeah. Because once you do decide to disclose, there are going to be questions. So you just have to be confident enough to say, yes, I'm living with HIV and be okay with the questions. So I think that that's that's really important. And like I said, I'm living with HIV and I say it confidently. But if I said it in a way where I was living with HIV and it's, oh, God, you know, I got HIV, you're going to get a completely different impression of HIV. But yeah. no, I'm living with HIV. I'm married. I have children. So it's all a part of who I am. And yeah. I and I say all of that with confidence so people receive it in that way. Yeah, yeah and I, I also think that people should pay attention to us in our relationship because I feel as though it gives people hope. 
and, and not just people living with HIV, but mm-hmm. people in general, whatever situation that people is, are dealing with, when you think that someone will not accept you because of this or because of that, we are a living example that it's okay. If yeah. someone loves you, they love you for you, and that's as simple as it is. And if they love you as much as they say they love you, that's not going to be a factor in determining how much they love you and what they're going to do to be with you. So that's why I push her to be out there and speak because I, I do believe that there's salvation and transparency. And when you're transparent about things, and it's not just HIV, but when you're transparent about things, you have the ability to save someone's life because a lot of people feel like they're the only person out there going through certain situations. And when you're able to look and see somebody else speaking yes. on something that they're going through, they they start to build that hope and, and belief that, man, I can get through this too. True example of unconditional love, family. And I just want to say congratulations to y'all. Thank Five you. years of marriage. Yes, yes. And happy Valentine's Day. Thank, thank you. you. To Lynette and Daniel Trawick, thank you so much for being on Flashpoint thank and talking you. about this. Thank you. Next up, two choices rooted in love. We describe the first meeting as like the most important first date of your life. A Philadelphia area nonprofit that helps build families. We'll be right back. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community. Hundreds of thousands of adoptions occur in the U.S. each year. Many say adopted children are truly cherished because they are chosen. Adoptions from the Heart is a nonprofit making these life-changing selections possible. Here to tell us about the organization's ongoing effort is Domestic Program Manager and Supervisor of the Wynwood Office, Ashley Cadet. Welcome to Flashpoint, Ashley. Thanks so much for having me. So this is our love show, and the organization is bringing in people who are motivated by love on both sides of adoption. Explain. Yeah, absolutely. So we are a private infant adoption agency. So we work with moms who are pregnant usually and thinking about adoption for the babies that they're carrying and then adoptive families who are looking to adopt a child. And so those parties all come together for the love of a child in order to provide that child a different life. And we do a lot of open adoptions. So that means that there's a continuing contact between the adoptive parents and the birth parents and the child as the child grows up. So this is a whole loving relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. So talk about the choices that a mother makes, this love choice that she makes to give her child up. So women have a lot of choices when they're pregnant. And I think one of the most difficult choices that a woman could make is an adoption plan because it means that really putting her child's needs before her own and making sure that that child has everything that they need to thrive in life. We provide a lot of choices and options for women who are considering adoption so they can actually choose the adoptive parents for their child and then they can decide how they want that open relationship to look. If they want to have visits in the future, if they want to get pictures and letters and see how the child is doing, all of those things are available to them. Wow. And then on the other side, you have parents looking for love. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have so many wonderful prospective adoptive families who are choosing adoption as the way to grow their family. For some of them, they're doing that because they've been unable to have a child biologically. For others, it's just a way that they want to grow their family. Yeah. And so what are some of the challenges of adoption? So I think one of the challenges is figuring out this open relationship. Mm. Um, In open adoption, it's different than any other relationship that anyone has. So we describe the first meeting as like the most 
important first date of your life because this is a person that hopefully you will have an ongoing relationship with forever. But it's a little awkward to get to know somebody for the first time already knowing that you're going to have that relationship ongoing. And then navigating those relationships as time goes on, as a child grows up and has questions, the positive of open adoption is that they have access to the person who can give them answers. But it's also a little bit different than families who are built biologically because you have these other people involved and you need to understand what everyone's roles are. Yeah. And I want to say, because back in the day, like it used to be you thought you were the biological child and then boom, you'd be like 16 or something and you find out that you were adopted and it'd be this shocking thing. Mm -hmm. And then you'd be on this quest for these parents Then you had to do hire investigators and stuff. But with open adoption, it's totally different. Absolutely. So our goal is that these kids know from the day they come home from the hospital their story. Um, So with open adoption, they get to have pictures of their birth parents. Hopefully they get to meet their birth parents and they get to have access to the answers to those questions. We encourage adoptive families to start telling that story from the day that baby comes home. And obviously that baby at one day old doesn't understand what they're talking about, but it helps the family start to get comfortable with telling that story so everybody knows the truth from the beginning. That also helps so the family doesn't need to decide, okay, you're nine years old now, I'm going to sit you down and tell you that you were adopted. They just always know. It's always a part of their story. And why is that better? So open adoption is really research has shown it's best for kids um, because they can have all of the pieces of their identity and be able to integrate it from the beginning instead of having to get this bomb dropped on them that they have to try to figure out how it fits into who they are. Yeah. And so you bring these families together. Does the, the family get to monitor the birth mom during the process or does she come after the baby's born, how does that work? Because you so, work with infants. Um, so we can really help somebody at any point in their pregnancy or even after they've attempted to parent. A lot of times it's a decision that women are thinking about while they're pregnant and you can't really know how you're going to feel until that baby is born. Yeah. So you can, you know, we talk a lot about it being a difference between your head and your heart and your head tells you this is what I have to do. This is the logical thing. And your heart can override that sometimes because when you see that little baby, You say, I can figure it out. I can make it work. A lot of people also come out of the woodwork. And so suddenly the family and the friends of the birth parents are coming around and saying, we'll help you. We'll do whatever we need to do to keep this baby in our family. And so from the adoptive parents perspective, they really need to be prepared for the possibility of what we call an adoption disruption. So the possibility that they are matched with a mom and she changes her mind or even that they might bring a baby home for a couple of days. Then the birth family changes their mind. And we understand that that is an incredibly difficult loss. But our goal is also that that adoptive family understands that that birth parent is really making the most like the most difficult decision. And if they feel like they need to parent their child, that they have that opportunity to do so. Yeah. And so you you all have been around for a quarter of a century. Wow. I don't think about it like that, but yeah, over 30 years. Yeah, yeah, more than a quarter of a century. (laughs) And you've helped a lot of families. Yes. um, So we do a huge donation drive throughout the year. We do gift cards at the holidays for birth parents who are parenting other children. And we also help women throughout the year. We have a birth parent scholarship fund for birth parents, not only from Adoptions from the Heart, but anyone who's made an adoption plan who are trying to get back on their feet and going back to school. Anyone can donate to our scholarship fund. We also have a general donation fund. So if we have a woman who is just struggling, maybe she can't work during her pregnancy and she needs help paying her electric bill. Maybe she needs some maternity clothes. Just those different little needs that come up throughout the year are also things that we can help with. Wonderful. And how can people donate? So you can just go to our website, www.adoptionsfromtheheart.org and learn more. 
Wonderful. So, Ashley Cadet, social worker, uh, matchmaker in many ways <laughs> for love. Uh, thank you so much for appearing on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thanks so much. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast for exclusive content using the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. Simply search Flashpoint KYW. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Henry Ford once said, money doesn't change men. It nearly unmasks them. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.